Welcome back to the Jefferson Exchange. I'm Angela Decker. Every month, sometimes more, we explore the rich history of our region and more with Southern Oregon University's Laboratory of Anthropology's Chelsea Rose. Today, we'll learn about plastic and its place in history and pretty much everywhere else. You're listening to Underground History, a collaboration between Jefferson Public Radio and the Southern Oregon University Laboratory of Anthropology, or SULA. I'm your host, Chelsea Rose, and each episode we take a deep dive into little-known aspects of history in Oregon and beyond. During this summer's Barbie craze, there was a funny meme going around about how there was a little Barbie in all of us because of the microplastics. This joke returned to haunt me during a class I took at a recent archaeological conference wherein I learned that we eat an average of a credit card's worth of plastic each month. And this horrifying fact had me and others wondering, how did we get here? Luckily for us, California Department of Transportation archaeologist Kimberly Wooten has been studying that very thing. She started teaching workshops about plastic in the archaeological record and has encouraged her colleagues to think about the ways in which we interact with plastic, whether it be in our homes, at mealtimes, or if you're an archaeologist, at work. And to bring this full circle, technically Barbie is now part of the archaeological record. Not all Barbies, but some dolls date to over 50 years now. So, hi, Artifact Barbie. Kimberly, thanks for joining us today. And I've kind of, like, decided that you're, like, the plastics archaeologist. But is that is that a name that, that you're you're willing to, like, fully lean into now? Absolutely. Yeah, I, I absolutely own that name. All right. Good, good. And so, I like I mentioned, I took this workshop um, this winter, and it was so popular. I mean, I loved it. It was so popular that you had to add a second one at the conference. So when did you um, start to kind of delve into this topic and and were you surprised at how much interest there was in this subject by your colleagues? Well, I started to, to kind of do research into microplastics in the oceans in about 2018. And research means just personal level. The research done about microplastics is really done at a much, you know, people who know what they're doing. I'm more of an archaeologist and have an interest in the microplastics. But I started delving into like the idea of trying to use the concept of teaching historic plastics in the archaeological record to kind of give myself a platform to eventually, within that class framework, talk about microplastics and our use of plastics in our personal lives and how we can advocate as archaeologists using the platform of archaeology to talk about social and environmental issues. So the first class I did was for the Society for California Archaeology, and it was the same situation where we set up a two-hour class. They were kind of skeptical at first, but it sold out really fast and they added a second one for that. And that was in March of 2023. And we had proposed the idea to the SCAs and they were totally willing to try it, but I was genuinely surprised at how much interest there was. And um, I think it's the key between looking at plastic as a artifact, but also people want to change their plastic footprint in their personal lives, in their contemporary lives. So I think that combination between contemporary archaeology, historic archaeology, and personal decision-making about plastic pollution, I think that's what brought people in. So we're going to do one more for the SCAs again. They invited us back this year, but we're just going to do one this time because it's kind of teaching them back-to-backs 
a challenge. (laughs) I bet. And, you know, like I said, I thought the class was so fascinating. And that's why I wanted to invite you onto the show so we could share some of these really interesting things with our, our listeners. And like you mentioned, it's kind of a paradigm shift for us to think about plastic as something that as archaeologists, we have to pay attention to. Like we've all found the creepy doll head on a project (laughs) or like the weird plastic junk that you encounter. And normally it's just, oh, it's disturbed or, oh, it's modern. But now we really do have to kind of check ourselves a little bit and be like, actually, this might be something that we need to consider as part of the archaeological record now, which is which is challenging. And that's where your info comes in. So it's it is a bit of a pushback, I guess. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So, you know, most people, when they think about archaeology, again, are not thinking about plastic like the public, but plastic does go back pretty far. So let's talk celluloid. That's the OG plastic, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So celluloid's actually kind of a um, kind of the pre-petroleum plastic. Bakelite's kind of the first, what I think of as modern plastic, um, because it's a fossil fuel-based polymer plastic. But celluloid's actually a a vegetable plastic, but it's still that alteration of a natural substance to create a, a kind of resin that can be molded. So I think, yeah, probably you're going to start seeing celluloid in the plastic record in the early 1870s. I think it was invented in 1869 it was patented. You know, there's going to be that little bit of lapse before you go from patent to actual product, but easily 1870s. Yeah, Yeah. and when plastic first comes in, it kind of stays in its own lane at first. It doesn't take over like it is now. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and it kind of, I remember you were saying it kind of mimics natural materials. Like we've seen things that are like amber, like it's meant to look like amber or like bone, like, you know, polished Like bone. ivory, yeah. Like ivory, so, yeah. Yeah, it was actually, somebody had asked in the class what color is camphor naturally, because that's where um, celluloid comes from is a combination of camphor. And it's actually, it is kind of an ivory color, the cream to cream the material itself. Cream is not quite the right word, but the material itself is ivory. So it was actually meant to sort of mimic these more expensive products like ivory and amber. And the other one is tortoise shell, which was kind of a, a higher end consumer product. It uses a whole new material to mimic pre-existing materials, which is the most fascinating part of plastic is that they're not doing anything. It's an absolutely new technology, but then they're still making it look like a, you know, a bone toothbrush (laughs) or, you know, something like that. So it's, to me, that's just, it's just a kind of a strange mindset actually, as the, as the producers go through time is that they continue to to make it look like these natural materials. And is that because it's a cheaper alternative and that where is where it comes in, but they're kind of pretending it's still like the fancier? Absolutely. Yeah, okay. So Yeah, yeah. it was a affordable, like not, you know, most people couldn't own, um, you know, bone was affordable, but ivory was less affordable. Tortoiseshell was expensive. So these are things like you could get a, a beautiful tortoiseshell comb but it was affordable. So Mm -hmm. it was something where, and it was because it was cheap to make, easy to make and affordable, then it became more of a price point that most consumers could afford. You're listening to Underground History on the Jefferson Exchange. You can find us online at jeffexchange.org. I'm your host, Chelsea Rose, and today I'm joined by Kimberly Wooten, the plastics archaeologist, and we're talking celluloid. So um, 
you know, keep going about what you were saying about how it's mimicking these fancier things that people are used to, but it's this whole new material. Yeah, I just think it makes things affordable for the public in a way that hadn't really been before and and accessible because materials aren't quite as rare. So if you're thinking about things like ivory or amber or tortoise shell, they become fairly common. Mm -hmm. And then you're going to start because they become more common and they last longer in the archaeological record, you'll start to see them more. So tortoise shell can decay pretty quickly, but um, plastic tortoise shell lasts longer. Uh-huh. Yeah. So that's that's good. If we see tortoiseshell in the archaeological record, we might want to double check it's not celluloid. So most yeah. people in the heritage world, when they think celluloid, they think um, film because it can be transparent. It was really a popular uh, material to make like um, movies and stuff with. And it's mm -hmm. flammable. So because yeah. it's camphor <laughs> and not nitroglyceride, but what what's the other uh, thing? Uh, I think it's nitrate. Um, citric, nitrate citric. Uh -huh. I'm, I'm going to totally say that wrong. So <laughs> maybe look it up. <laughs> yeah. Well, something flammable. And so yes. that's, that's something that, um, you know, if you're thinking about who, who cares if it's actually cellulit or not for archaeologists, you know, there's a time thing, like you said, it can go back pretty far, but also if you're thinking about like storage of it, it can, does it just spontaneously combust or it's just really flammable if there's some kind of ignition point? I think you need an ignition point. Okay. So I'm not, I, I would not say that about film. I'm not familiar with film per se, but I, I think you can have, you know, your antique fan, you know, fan collection in your house and you're going to be fine. Yeah. Yeah. But if you're going to try to light it on fire, that's, <laughs> that, yeah. that will go up in flame pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah, don't do that. <laughs> and one of the things that was really fun, in addition to learning about all these different early plastics, there's also mad scientisty ways that you can actually test with some pretty um, good confidence that you have these different materials. So with the celluloid, and actually I think a lot of them, it's heating it up a little bit through, is that the one where we did like the agitation, like you can just like rub it or you can put it in hot water, right? Celluloid, you can put it in a bit of hot water and you'll get that really kind of almost like uh, menthol like Vicks Vapor Rub And smell. that's the camphor very, probably? Yeah, it's the camphor. In fact, I think they had camphor in the hotel because they actually use it as a essential oil too. I think oh. it was in the hotel shampoo because when I was walking around the <laughs> conference, I could smell it on people. I'm like, oh, hey, camphor. But um, so for celluloid, you can test um, fairly non-destructively by putting it in hot water and mm -hmm. then you'll get this distinct smell. And then Bakelite, you can use friction from your thumb or your fingers. And if you rub it, um, you can get a, a different kind of smell. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't suggest putting that in hot water, but also the best way, I think the simplest way to test Bakelite is to use in the U.S. Formula 409 and you put a little bit on a Q-tip or on a little um, you know, piece of paper towel and then you wipe that on your object. And if it comes out like a pale yellow, then that's generally an indication of Bakelite. And that's just even no matter, I remember, no matter what the color of the Bakelite was, it's yellow because that's some kind of chemical reaction or something. Yeah, it's I a guess. chemical reaction to yeah. the 409, which I don't know what is actually in 409, which some of the <laughs> students pointed out who don't have it in their country. So... And there's there's still a few things made with celluloid today, like I think ping pong balls, and I think you'd mentioned something else. Uh, guitar picks guitar or picks. instrument picks. 
but but not yeah. much. And because it is like a vegetable based plastic, is there a movement to go back to it? I mean, since we want to like think about minimizing the the purely artificial synthetic plastics that we have, have you heard anything about that? I have not, not at all. And I do quite a bit of reading about this, mm-hmm. like, you know, kind of like, is there sort of a, you know, mushroom type of plastic or mm-hmm. there's lots of um, discussion. Like I think the most recent one was prickly pear cactus plastic. So there's lots of discussion about doing vegetable based plastics, but I've never heard of anybody going back to the celluloid. And that may be just simply because it is flammable. Well, if you can make it out of a mushroom, then it's less um, toxic anyway, probably, than camphor yeah. <laughs> and whatever that other stuff is. So let's talk a little bit more about Bakelite. So for those of us who love vintage shopping and mid-century mm-hmm. modern, you think about the chunky jewelry and really fun buttons. And, um, you know, I always also think about the silverware handles. But what are some other things that we might encounter? Because this is when, when you get to Bakelite, um, you know, this is really when it starts to be mass produced and they start to get a little more creative with the medium, right? Yeah, I would say so. I I think you're still looking, if you're looking at Bakelite from a personal, lots of jewelry, lots of household goods, like handles on on tablewares and things like that. And then um, there's another side to Bakelite. And I want to give a shout out to my co-teacher, Julia Huddleston. She's usually the one who teaches the Bakelite section of our class. But for the other side of Bakelite is an industrial side, and it's used um, in a lot of industrial equipment because it tolerates heat really well. And then um, my husband's also an archaeologist, and he brings me Bakelite gifts from um, different things. Like he just brought me like it's a – and he calls it um, from an automobile world, he calls it red and black Bakelite. So the – Red Bakelite is the brown Bakelite that you might see in um, auto, you know, car parts or things like that. And then black is much darker. It's not quite black, but it's it's much darker than the brown Bakelite. But he just brought me home a, um, it's a antenna changer for something for your, your television set. So it's a red Bakelite, which is technically brown in color. And um, it just was used for uh, initially because it was, these darker kind of blah colors, I guess, for lack of a better term. Initially, it was used for more industrial purposes. And then it starts getting into the beautiful kind of, they're still kind of a, uh, they're not super bright colors, but mm-hmm. you know, you're familiar with like the bracelets and the earrings and the, those reds and butterscotch and um, colors like that. So I think, yeah, all sorts of purposes, but yeah. um, really domestic oriented. You're listening to Underground History. I'm Chelsea Rose, and today we're talking plastic. You know, with Bakelite, you get really colorful, but it's always kind of like a matte color. And is the is the moonstone, or what, what was the one that gets really glossy? Is that acrylic, or is that the Bakelite? That's acrylic. Oh, so then you're kind of, you're going in a different direction. I, like, probably, strangely enough, acrylic is one of my favorite uh-huh. plastics from a kind of personal decorative point of view, because it does get some really beautiful coloring and it's much it's much uh brighter when you're looking at uh buttons and you know jewelry and things like that it's just it's you know bright purples bright yellows whereas the celluloid and the bakelite have a much more muted color whereas the acrylics and especially as you go you know go closer to the 1960s and 1970s the colors are much brighter you know you make cherry reds and then the moonstone is where it has that almost like a glow to it so Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And when we were talking in the class, we were talking about the acrylic, which later kind of becomes known as Lucite. But you told the story of the airplane windows. And I thought that was so interesting. Will you share that story with us? Sure. And, you know, um, I went back to like confirm this story and this story was told to me. Yeah. Because, um, we talked about it at the end of the class. So this story was told to me by a woman named, um, Sally Newton. And she has a, she's had owned for 50 years, a vintage clothing store with the most amazing buttons in the community where I live. So she's kind of our resident, um, textile and button and, um, early plastics expert. And so she, um, was showing me her collection of early like um, lucite or acrylic buttons. And they're these really chunky, it's almost like if you were to take a, a ice cube and carve a little kind of very basic little flower in it. They're thick, they're clear, they're, um, they usually just have a simple metal shank. Sometimes they're a sew-through button, but the early ones have that middle metal shank that's melted into the interior of the Yeah, I have some um, cameos that are like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, and are yours kind of nicely carved, or are they kind of chunky? Well, they're they're kind of chunky, like, but they were like the ones in your thing where it's like uh, from the front it's solid, and on the back it's kind of crudely carved in it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, the story I told I was told was that when after World War II there was a lot of this these reams for better word <laughs> lack of a better word these kind of sheets of airplane windshield uh, made out of acrylic, and so they're really strong. But they didn't have any purpose for them. And they were, I think DuPont was one of the first makers of acrylic. And so what they ended up doing is after World War II is chopping these into little bits, into these little cubes, and then making these really simple carved, you know, uh, lucite or acrylic buttons. But I really want to find out. I need maybe one of your listeners knows the the answer to whether this is a true story or not. So. I love the story, though. <laughs> I do. I think it makes total sense. It's it like does. I've got all this plastic windshield and nobody's, you know, I don't need it anymore. Let's you know, find a domestic product for it. Yeah. So. Some innovator was like, I can do something cool with there with that. And that, yeah. that plastic window would have been like the, the predecessor to like, um, plexiglass, I guess. Right. Yeah. Actually plexiglass, I think is the competitive name to Lucite. So oh. I think, um, the plexiglass is another, like what you call like a brand name. And, and so Lucite, if that's coming in, like you said, airplane glass, it's like, the 30s, 40s, or when does that come in? Yeah, I think Lucite. I think Lucite as a trademark name comes in in uh, maybe early 30s, mm-hmm. but acrylic itself, I think, is invented in the late 20s. So Lucite's just the trade name for acrylic, but I'm sure they weren't going around calling them Lucite airplane window shields. They were just acrylic. So Lucite's that trade name that they're selling it to the public, public and- with. And even plexiglass works that way, too, in that sense. And when we think of acrylic, it's like the polymer that can be, you know, formed a different... Is that the same, like, acrylic nails, like fingernail, what people put on their nails? Yeah, actually, um, it is It is similar. It's just a polymer. It's just how it's structured. I, I think acrylic becomes almost like a common name for a lot of plastics that we have today. And as they get more modern, I have less ability to actually identify them. Yeah. And so I just call them often hard plastic. That's that's what I was going to ask too, because once you get into the lucite and stuff, you have the buttons and the jewelry with all the different colors and stuff, but people also start to kind of get more creative with what they can do with this now. They can mold things in all different shapes and you're not limited to kind of like um, mimicking forms that you would make out of organic materials, right? Is this when you really start to see creativity in this medium? Um, 
Actually, I think even with like um, that early acrylic, they started using color as a like in they switched to late 1920s, early 30s. They switched from the same shape of toothbrush that we think of, you know, today. They switched from kind of like a more muted, sometimes there was, I mean, originally toothbrushes, we used bone, and then we kind of started switching over to this rubber, which wasn't a great material. And then we switched to acrylic, which is actually a really strong material and worked really well. But then they, instead of, you know, we think of bone toothbrushes, they're just this creamy bone color, but then you come up with this, these uh, acrylic or lucite toothbrushes, and they're like brilliant colors, like bright blue, bright green, cherry red. So actually that changed not a change in form so much, but a change in really thinking about the color of something. So it becomes, you know, you're not, it's not the same bone toothbrush that you buy everywhere else. It's like, now I can pick one because I like the color red or I like the color, you know, purple or something like that. So it becomes, it's kind of interesting that way. There are small changes in like color and then there are big changes in, like you said, later in the use of acrylic where we start to reshape the way a television shaped or we start to reshape uh, in form, not just function. So. Yeah. And so you're adding um, consumer choice in colors and stuff like that in addition mm-hmm. to like cheaper and more widely available. So yeah, that's a really good way to put it. Absolutely. Yeah. You're listening to Underground History on the Jefferson Exchange. You can find us online at jeffexchange.org. I'm your host, Chelsea Rose, and today I'm speaking with archaeologist Kimberly Wooten about plastics in the archaeological record and our homes. So once you get into um, acrylic and, and lucite, then like like you mentioned, it becomes a little bit harder to like nail down like dates as far as the archaeological record. But when when you think about, just to go back to that a little bit, in your research, like if you were doing some work, is there um, an example of something plastic you found that you were able to kind of tell a story about and understand the site a little bit better? Do you have any examples of that? Um, well, I did some work in Poland and they had a uh, a little hard plastic doll. And so she wasn't, I wouldn't call her celluloid. Um, she's definitely not Bakelite because um, she's a lighter plastic, but it was just her torso. And um, that wasn't the function of the excavation. But um, as you're, you're doing the work, you do come across, you know, what we consider more modern plastics. But this little girl missing her arms and her legs, um, which would have been, you know, articulated and held on with rubber bands. But um, it was her 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 hairstyle that was like 1930s um so i guess you think about things like that um those kinds of things yeah. i think stay with me as i start to think about moving into the modern archaeological record is that it's a different material but it's still she still has that little hairstyle that you might see on a composition doll which you probably wouldn't see in the archaeological record because she that wouldn't really that composition material, but the plastic does. Well, that's a good point. It's like, it's just another artifact material type. So we've got to use it in conjunction with all the other clues and ways that we read these sites. So, but, but you, I mean, that, that point to like, it survives. So it's going to be, there's so much stuff now, like before it's like, you'd find stone tools or you find like glass and a lot of the organic materials or things don't survive on a site. But as we, you know, in the 20th century, as things become increasingly, increasingly plastic, the archaeologists are going to be able to find too much of a good thing, probably. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, because I think, you know, that combination, 
that it's just so cheap to make plastic. And that's what's affecting, you know, that's why we have a plastic pollution crisis. It wasn't the little plastic dolls that people made, which, you know, that starts to contribute over time. It's really the, the, it is cheaper to make something out of virgin plastic now than it is to recycle it and then take that recycled plastic and make something. So it's just, it's such a, the overwhelm, I think, and this is outside the archaeological record, this is when we're moving into our, you know, our lives today, is that it's just this overwhelming abundance of, it's just this material that you, it's in everything. You can't avoid it. And we're such a large population globally that, you know, what we would have used, you know, thousands of years ago is now, you know, there's so many more of us Mm -hmm. to use those tools and those objects and those single-use plastic ketchup packets and it's just sometimes it's a little hard to conceive of how much plastic we use and waste yeah and you know I think it snuck up on us like you said because you started it started being substituted for things that you didn't think about not being you know like bone or whatever and Mm -hmm. then it just kind of expands out and out and out and even stuff now today that you don't think about has plastic in it like um material like hand wipes and stuff you know stuff like that just like there's so many things that you don't it's not just hard plastic anymore it's like little clothing clothing has all the plastic too right oh yeah yeah the fast fashion is one of the most destructive plastic filled industries in the world so you wouldn't it's not something you would necessarily think about but they're synthetic they're you know uh plastic based clothing basically and because we waste so much of it you know, I think the average clothing piece is worn for three three months and then and is not actually necessarily recycled through like a secondhand clothing store or thrift shop. So it's just an incredible amount of waste. Um, and I think the only way to change that is just to change behavior, which <laughs> is not a necessarily easy thing. Even in my own life where I try to live a fairly plastic-free life, I'm always discovering something new that I can change or my behavior that I can change or, and, yeah. and where I'm not doing it well. And we're, you know, in addition to the, the pollution crisis, now they're saying like, Oh, drinking out of water bottles, you know, now you're drinking tons of plastic and all the other ways that it's entering our bodies. And it's like, Ooh, yeah. So scary. there isn't any part of your body that does not have plastic in it. Oh, I was just going to say, and there's nowhere in the world, there's rainwater without plastic, right? Yeah, rainwater, snow, it's in the deepest um, parts of the ocean. There is not a place where there is not plastic. It's in our soils where we grow our food. It's in um, our blood, our brain tissue, our semen, our mother's milk. It's everywhere. Uh, Yeah, it seems like it. And, you know, and also just to think back from the archaeological um, perspective, like in the future when people are coring, there's probably going to be a really obvious difference when you enter the plastic record because you'll see all the microplastics in the the soils and stuff like that, I guess, huh? We're really making a unique sedimentary layer of our our time. Yeah, it actually is already a geological. um, There's already places where plastic and rock have combined to create a geological layer. So they think of it you know, they call it the Plasticine or the Anthropocene, and the number one marker of that will be a fossil fuel-based plastic. You it's know, a little grim. 
And I guess this is job security for you because people are yeah. only going to need to know more about plastics as they go on. Yeah. But, I mean, you know, before we wrap up, we just really quickly, is there one like positive thing that we can end on? Like what's a really easy swap out of to get plastic out of your life? Or is there a fun fact that we can um, we can end on? Well, I really actually like, and it took a little bit of adjustment. I like the toothpaste tablet, which is kind of a nice archaeological because we started with tooth powders and things like that. And you could find those in the little ceramic tubs, or then we had tooth powders that came in these little funky cans that you could just open the top and then shake them out almost like a cone top. And now lots of people make their own tooth powders. I haven't tried that yet, but I do use a toothpaste tablet, which is a compressed tooth powder. And um, my dentist is like, that's what have you been doing? It's fabulous. It's the, <laughs> the best your teeth have looked in years. So I guess that's positive is that we can have a shift because while toothpaste doesn't have plastic and in theory you can recycle toothpaste tubes, they're very, very hard um, and labor intensive and almost never recycled. So yeah. I think there's lots of things like that. Yeah, start small and it adds up. Gosh, thank you so much, Kimberly. This has been so fascinating. And I'm so excited that I got to share some of this with our listeners, what I got to hear about in that that workshop this winter. So thanks so much for making time to come on the show. Yeah, thank you very much. And that wraps up this round of Underground History on the Jefferson Exchange. I'm your host, Chelsea Rose, and our show producers are Angela Decker and Charlie Zimmerman. You can find this episode and a bunch of others at jeffexchange.org or wherever you get your podcasts.